Bridges to Bailey, back to Bridges, once more to Bailey, now it's Bridges, here's Bailey, oh my, Bridges, Bailey, Bailey, Bridges, and they scored! Last play of the game, 98 yards to go, and these boys ain't got no more hope than a pig in a parlor. Pitch goes to the right, defense closing in, and he's floating. He's in the air, a human being is taking flight, he's flying to the 50, the end zone, touchdown! The piggies have done it, I turned, I turned, I turned, the piggies win! Oh, sacré bleu, il est fort sans pied. Il utilise ses mains. Sans pied? Un honte, un disgrace. Oh, what's this? He's thrown it back. This could change the sport. A terrible day for fishing, a great day for the fish. This is Apocalypse Sports Radio. And now your host, Shane Ryan. Apocalypse Sports Radio, episode number 14. I'm Shane. Hello, everybody. The big news from this past weekend was the return of golf down at the Colonial in Fort Worth, Texas. Uh, first PGA Tour event since the pandemic shut things down after the Players' Championship. Uh, and I have to say, I think it was a, a big success. Uh, first of all, nobody got COVID, which is good. They, they tested everyone, and everybody came back safe. And second of all, it was a really good tournament. Uh, I quite enjoyed watching it, especially on Sunday. Uh, I was sitting in my covered porch here in Durham, a lovely, cool day, sunny out, and... Yeah, I just did some work and watched golf for five hours, and it was great to be able to do that. So I think they did a nice job. Uh, the action was fantastic, and we are lucky enough to have Kevin Robbins with us today. Uh, Kevin is the author of The Last Stand of Payne Stewart, a book that came out last fall and is phenomenal. Uh, he's on the staff at, at UT Austin um, down in Texas, and he had a long sports writing career before that, including 12 years at the Austin American Statesman. And he was on site for Golf Digest covering the Colonial so this is somebody who knows all things golf. He knows all things Texas. And it was a, uh, we had a really nice chat, so I think you're going to enjoy that. So we've got him, and then following that, we've got another Spike's take. Spike is back in international waters after taking a week off. So there's that to look forward to as well, and that is our show for the week. So let us get right down to it after a plug. Ha! You thought you were getting away without a plug. You are not. So this will be quick. The Apocalypse Sports Network uh, consists of two podcasts each week. One, like the one you're listening to now, which is sort of a variety show. We've got a couple of guests on. We talk about what is new and relevant in sports. And the other one is a longer form interview. We've talked with people like Drew McGarry, uh, Chris Jones last week, Will Leach, John Feinstein, Tim Reynolds, on and on and on. Uh, so that's a lot of fun, too. So you got that, plus you have ApocalypseSports.net, where five days a week I'm blogging, I'm writing essays, I'm doing whatever, there's content every single day, it's good, you can get it by email, you can get it on the website, whatever you want. Uh, some of this stuff is free, some of it's behind a paywall, you can get it all and support the Apocalypse Sports Network for just $3 a month, uh, either at apocalypsesports.net or patreon.com slash apocalypseports. So, yeah, there you go. If you like this stuff, sign up, you'll have fun. Uh, if you're already signed up and enjoying it, tell some friends, whatever, do whatever you want to do. All right, let us get right down to it. Uh, we're going to start with Kevin Robbins. Segment break. All right, as mentioned, Kevin Robbins, the author of The Last Stand of Payne Stewart. He is on the faculty at the University of Texas at Austin, and he was down at the Colonial covering it for Golf Digest. Kevin, how's it going? Good, man. Good to be with you. Thanks, Shane. Yeah, you got it. So you were at the Colonial this past week, and you wrote some great stuff for Golf Digest, and I have about a thousand specific questions about all the players and the amazing leaderboard I saw. Um, but probably let's just start broadly. I mean, you, you were there early in the week, you were there through Sunday. 
you saw golf on the PGA Tour as probably it's never really been played before. What was the yeah. scene like there? I mean, how how crazy was it? And and you know, I have I have perspective. Uh, I did Colonial um, for the Austin American Statesman many times in the 2000s. I was there in 03 when Annika was there. And so I, uh, you know, oddly enough, it's this um, sort of, I don't know, uh, low scale event on the tour schedule that seems to get something historic every 15 years. Uh, with Annika, there were, there were 19,000 people on the grounds on Thursday when wow. Annika teed off on number 10. And I remember, um, you know, the spectators were 12 or 15 deep around the, the 10th tee when she started. And I was thinking about that, uh, certainly through the practice rounds this week. Um, but, but really on Thursday, um, because they had a split tee start and I was down on 10, just thinking about how, you know, 17 years ago, it was like bedlam and in 2020, there's, there's no one there. It was, uh, you know, um, <sighs> I've been thinking a lot about how to describe it and it's hard. It was, uh, there was something sort of appealing about it. Um, yeah. you could hear, you could hear things that you normally can't hear at a PGA tour tournament, things that you hear when you just play around a round of golf with your friends, uh, you know, birds, airplanes, uh, trains, um, yeah. you hear, you hear caddies and players talking and, and with clarity that, uh, you usually don't get, um, and it's just so easy to get around too, you know, there's no jostling for space in front of spectators inside the ropes or whatever. Uh, and I think the players actually, um, if they're really being honest, they preferred it too, uh, really? until wow. yesterday, until Sunday, okay. Shane, okay. Yeah. yeah, like yesterday, you know, coming down the stretch, it felt empty. It felt desolate. It felt wrong <laughs> really um, okay yeah, that, yeah that's interesting did. to hear yeah yeah and we can talk about that in a little bit but i'm trying to trying to stay sort of big picture here um but yeah i think the players kind of liked the the simplicity of it the, the the lack of distractions um uh and certainly until yesterday and yesterday it had, and some players spoke to this it had to feel like there was something missing because there was yeah. Now, it's funny because from a TV perspective, I would say even on Sunday, I didn't feel that golf lost a ton by not having spectators there. And uh, I'm somebody who I, I watched German soccer starting a month ago, uh, which I had never done in my life, but just desperation for any sports. And watching a soccer match without the noise of the crowd was jarring. It, was t it really was a bad, I think, experience, and it took away from it. And yeah. within two weeks, Fox Sports started pumping in crowd noise. Uh, and it was a good decision. Even though it seems phony and weird, it really it's just a better viewing experience. But I didn't feel that way about golf. So it's interesting to hear that, at least until the high drama of Sunday, that was also kind of the feeling there in person that, you know, it's really not that bad. And in fact, the novelty of it is kind of interesting and, and maybe good in some way. It really, it was. Um, and, you know, yesterday, what was missing... Um, player there at one at one point you had guys at, like a couple of guys at minus 15 and like four guys at minus 14 and a couple of guys at minus 13 um there were probably eight players who had a chance to win with an hour left it seemed and um unless they were like studying leaderboards there's no way for them to understand what's happening elsewhere right you know right. there's no, no sonic evidence of somebody just canning along when it's 16 or something um, and plus, I think, um, 
you know, some of the more experienced players who were in the mix, they ride on the, the, the energy of the crowds. And there was, there was no energy. I mean, let's be honest, uh, as appealing as this tournament was, there was zero energy. And, um, some people might like that. I, I did. I grew to appreciate that. But there was no energy at Colonial this week. Yeah, that's interesting. And the only player I thought might appreciate it was Morikawa because he did not mm-hmm. get the, as I wrote, I think I wrote earlier today, like a cacophony of groans that would have accompanied uh, <laughs> that miss. Were you now, were you with that group? Were they, were you walking with them at that point? Uh, are you talking about the playoff? I'm talking about the playoff. Yeah. Yeah, I was, I was, I was 15 feet away when yeah. he missed the putt. So picture this: um, that that green is a little bit elevated. So uh, as I was standing, I could see um, the the putter at, when Morikawa addressed the putt between some guy's arm and his and his chest. He was holding something out, okay. and and I remember, and I wish I would have had the presence of mind to count the seconds, but I remember at some point thinking he needs to move. He either needs to bounce the putter or stroke the putt or something. I mean, do you, do you remember how long he stood over that putt? Well, it's, yeah, it's like taking a free throw almost, right? Like the longer you stand yeah. there, the, the lower your chances are of actually making it. And it wasn't so much that he needed to make the stroke. He just needed to keep his body moving. Yeah. Like back um, off and redo it or something like that. Or yeah. Or just yeah. like bounce the putter a little bit or, or, you know, uh, shuffle, your, shuffle the stance, something, but he was frozen mm-hmm. and, and that's when it occurred to me that there is a slight chance that he's going to miss this putt because some something's going on. He's doubting something. Um, so anyway, yeah, I was right there. That's me great. Three other people. Yeah, and you know, Morikawa is an interesting guy uh, to talk about too because he, you know, I like to play you know amateur psychologist when I'm watching on TV or when I'm at the course in person. I thought starting with the putt on 18 that he missed, that would have, of course, won it. As it turns out, it would have won it for him in regulation. Uh, I thought he looked nervous, and I thought he looked extremely nervous before the playoff. You're right there, bird's eye view. Were you getting that vibe from him? He's pretty stoic, um, and he didn't really betray much. I was there. I walked, and in, in fact, I literally walked next to him to the 17 tee for, for the playoff, trying to get some sort of sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, but... Um, you know, he, he, uh, he's, he didn't emote much okay. and he didn't emote much the entire, I watched him the last six holes because, uh, his, his caddy, um, is a, uh, a, a, a friend of a, we have a mutual friend back in Austin. Mm-hmm. And so this friend of mine is texting me saying, if Morikawa wins, do you want me to hook you up with the caddy? Well, typically I would say, no, I'm fine. But in these conditions where the, the media had zero access. Is to that the right? Player, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, anyway, uh, we can talk. I do want to talk about that because there was a, a distinction. There were two kinds of people at Colonial this week. Uh, you were either tested or you were screened and the two could not mix, but oh, we'll get to that. Okay. So walking to 17 T now I got no, I got no, no vibe from Morikawa. Um, I didn't see it on 18 either, but that was from a distance. I was up on the hill watching the putt, but you know, Morikawa's not a strong putter and it's, it's a shame that it, it, he's a, you know, he's a sublime ball striker and maybe one of the best iron players on the tour right now. But uh, one of his weaknesses is putting and uh, you know, it cost him. Yeah. And you know, he was, I thought he had a really, really good round considering the circumstances and right up until the putt on 18, it was, 
really, I mean, a dream round in some ways. Played steady, did enough to win, and then it all kind of collapsed. Even though, we should say, he had a tremendous chip in the playoff hole. So, for whatever that's worth, to give him a chance to stay in it. Um, real quick, one more broad question before we get into some of the players. Uh, you wrote a piece about the the moment of silence they took. Was that on, I don't know if it was on Thursday or Friday. I think on Thursday. No, Thursday. Yeah, and tell me about that. You know, it's an interesting thing to me. Obviously, this is... The story that is unavoidable right now, but at the same time, golf tends to be a conservative sport with a lot of conservative players, uh, but they did have this minute of silence. Did that feel legitimate to you? I mean, were people really feeling it? What was it like for that? You know, it's hard to say, Shane, because there were so few people there again. Um, the uh, I could tell, I got there, I, I probably set up camp there about like eight o'clock on the first tee just to watch some players go off and get a sense for things. And I could tell that it was getting close to the time because uh, here came all the cameras, you know, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. TV and still cameras. So I knew, you know, I was, it was getting close. Um, and then uh, uh, the, the commissioner came out. Um, there, there were three blasts from an air horn. Uh, then the place went truly silent. Um, and I, it, the first tee is on a hill, so you can look down and see much of the front nine. And, um, you know, everybody's literally standing still and, and uh, they've taken their hats off. Um, it did feel, it did feel legitimate. Um, I mean, there was, I don't know, part of it felt a little bit contrived and a little bit like for the cameras sure. when, yeah. when the yeah. commissioner spoke, you know, but, uh, here's what it did. And I think I tried to write this in my, in my little story that, um, it gave people a moment to think and whether they were thinking about the next shot or, what they were going to do for dinner that night, or whether they were really thinking about George Floyd and the problem of police brutality that we have in this country, who knows, but, um, it gave them that moment and, and it, it almost prescribed for them what to think about. So in that way, I think it's healthy and, uh, it felt right. You know, I did talk to, uh, a, a few players via zoom or Microsoft, uh, teams and, um, they all said like it had to happen. It couldn't not happen. Something had to be done. Yeah. 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 And, and, and it felt right. Yeah. I thought you put it great in your story. You said three blasts from an air horn won't unite the country and a moment of silence won't heal the city of Fort Worth. But the consensus at Colonial is that doing nothing was not an option. And I think that's exactly. it boils down to that. Uh, yeah. Now, so talking about the media too, I, you know, I'm thinking of going down to, uh, to South Carolina this week, maybe. Uh, so you, you can tell me whether it's worth it or not. I was curious. Uh, you talked about screening versus being tested. Is it is it basically the case that you can't get near these guys? Tell me about access. Yeah, that is the case. So um, so the players and the caddies and other essential staff uh, were tested, um, uh, were swabbed. And uh, once they once their tests came out, a negative, then they're, they're in the bubble as right. the tour likes to say. Right. Um, and, and we, and uh, like volunteers, uh, the media, um, I think they, I think I heard that they, uh, tested 1100 or 1400 people. Uh, the rest of us were screened, which means, um, every day we had to answer a couple of questions about symptoms and contact with people who have COVID. Okay. Uh, and then we, we are either, um, digitally scanned on our foreheads or, or for the rest of the week, that was like day two, one and two, uh, the rest of the week, we, there was like a full body scan, a temperature scan as we walked up to get check in. Interesting. Um, 
So we weren't tested. And so that means that we could not have any close proximity with people who were tested. Uh, so what that meant for players is that, and caddies too, is that we were pro- prohibited from approaching them um, on anywhere on the grounds. In fact, it literally said in the new regulations that you'll see next week, you can't do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So any, any uh, interaction that we had with the players came on Microsoft teams like this, uh, okay. like what we're doing right now. Um, and that, that, uh, that changed, that changed things a lot. It, it felt a lot less genuine. It felt certainly felt a lot less independent, you mm-hmm. know, right. Right. Um, you know, usually at a tournament, you have 156 or 148 players. You can go like find your own thing yeah. here. No, they, with a tour brought to the, uh, virtual press conferences who they chose to. And every, you know, if you wanted to talk to somebody who's in 80th place, there's no chance to do it. I thought you showed good restraint in your, in your story on Sunday. I probably would have written 2000 words about the pecan trees or something. If, <laughs> if <laughs> yeah. you deprive me of the chance to write, to interview people, it's like, I'm going full on nature. It's going to be a treat <laughs> diary and everybody's going to hate it. No, but yeah, that, that does sound frustrating. And it's, it's one reason that I'm, you know, I, otherwise I would be, at Hilton Head this week on a normal year. Uh, and now it seems like, you know, talking with some of the Golf Digest editors, and obviously you relay that info to them, it sounds like it's kind of a tough situation. Um, so he- here's the guy I want to talk about. I-, I thought this person stole the show. I'm talking about Bryson DeChambeau. And <laughs> I, I got to say, Kevin, so here's my perspective on it. Earlier in the week, it's like, oh, man, what a sideshow this is with his, you know, his workout stuff. The guy looks insanely beefy and brawny. Um, and then all of a sudden, you know, he's playing really well. He's hitting the shit out of the ball. Uh, pardon my language. But, you know, he's really cranking it. And then he's got a chance to win. And he says after, he said, if I could have just putted moderately, you know, I would have won. And I think he's right. As much as, much as a weird guy as DeChambeau is, I think he, he really could have won this thing pretty easily. And now I'm wondering, I'm like, did we just witness a revolution in the game? Is this like the forward pass? Like the first time someone threw a forward pass in football, uh, you know, in 10 years, is everybody going to look like DeChambeau? Uh, talk about that. Cause I really thought in some ways, even with all the great action on Sunday, he was the story of the week. He was definitely one of the stories of the week. Um, yeah, I, I, it, it was almost like a sideshow, and I had to go out and watch him on Thursday. He had a good grouping. I can't remember who it was, but he was with two other really, really good uh, uh, notable players. So I went out and watched him play like six holes. And because our proximity is in uh, intimacy is was so good, I mean, six feet and out, but because um, mm-hmm. yeah. there were no crowds, I could get up. Uh, pretty close and study him. Um, yeah, man. Like he reminded me of uh, like a bar bouncer who yeah. is serious, like who means what he says. Uh, he is, he, he looks like a, a like a, a linebacker. And, yeah. um, but, but what's really uh, impressive is, I mean, I, he's an He's got this experiment. He, he wants to push the boundaries of strength in golf. He wants to see how far it can go until it's, he reaches the point of diminishing returns. And um, I guess he's got such good technique and form that he can, he can swing as hard as he can mm-hmm. at the ball and, and still find it. You know, I learned this week that he's playing a five and a half degree driver. Now, um, 
I didn't even know they manufactured five and a half degree right. drivers. Uh, and let me tell you, Shane, um, he hits a driver as high as I've ever seen a golf ball go. Yeah. Um, as high as any towering nine iron Tiger Woods ever hit, um, as, as high as uh, a three wood that Phil Mickelson had hit in his prime. I mean, I'm still trying to get my mind around, and I don't have a, uh, I don't, I don't, I can't like tell you how, how many feet it was at its apex. Right. right. Um, but, but it is, they're moon balls. I don't know how he's doing it. Uh, but, but yeah, he, I mean, I love it, man. Like, I, I don't find him all that compelling as a, as a person, but right. his experiment is really interesting to me. Yeah, and you know, I saw your tweet about the height of the drives, and a lot of other people were commenting on it. And for those who aren't experts at the equipment, this five point five degree hitting it high is paradoxical. That though, a normal player uses that that type of driver, and he's hitting low liners, right? And so, yeah, it's uh, it really was something to see. And you never know, you know, it's like when he started putting with the flag in, and then you're kind of it was kind of a joke, and then everybody's doing it. You know, it seems like DeChambeau, despite the fact that I don't think he's that well liked. In fact, I know he's not that well liked on tour. He's somebody that the media is so so on. I'm so so on. Yeah. But he does seem to be innovative, doesn't he? I mean, and some of the stuff he, he does, does, it works. And you know, people seem to follow him sometimes with some of the stuff. And you know, probably we're gonna see it even with like the you know, the clubs all being the same length and everything, stuff like that, where you go, geez, that was a pretty good idea. <laughs> Well, it could be. And I think that, you know, we're going to have to wait to see whether bulking up is a good idea. I mean, I, I, I'm curious about the, the strain and the stress on his body. Right. Uh, right. Will he, is he durable? Um, you know, is he going to wreck himself with this? I, I just don't know. Uh, but uh, the, 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 the violence with which he hits the golf ball, like, I just don't know how that's sustainable. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. And uh, okay, so Jordan Spieth obviously is the next person we should talk about. He uh, he looked great for two days. Uh, you know, we talk about this slump that he's in, or call it a drought, call it whatever you want. But there has been a consistent thread of he does put up good Thursdays and Fridays, and he has throughout. It's not like his game is ever. I mean, he's had some miserable tournaments. Don't get me wrong, but he's also had plenty where after Friday he looks to be in contention. And here, you know, I don't know the exact scores. I think it was maybe 66, 66, and then by Sunday he's shooting a 73. So in a lot of ways, the rhythms have not changed as much as people wanted to portray this as, here we go, Spieth is back. Uh, what impression were you left with? Is this just more of the same from him? Uh, what was the vibe there? Well, just because I, I, I don't want you to overstate things, he, he was 65, 65 on Thursday, Friday, and shot 71 yesterday. Okay. Got it. Thank you. Yeah. But, but it yeah. was definitely like 71 at colonial. You're losing, you're losing places, obviously. Right. Uh, right. Yeah. I, you know, I don't know. I'm not going to pretend to be, uh, to have any sort of insider perspective on Jordan Spieth. I mean, he is someone I watched him play golf since he was 16. I went to the Nelson when he was a 16 year old, uh, rising senior Dallas Jesuit. Um, and, uh, you know, he's, he runs hot. And I was told that when I was at the Nelson, when he was 16 years old, we didn't see that. And maybe that's cause he played well. Um, you know, I, I did see it. I've seen it. I've, I saw oh, so it. You, when you say run hot, you mean like he's a key kind of an angry guy sometimes. He tends to get angry at himself. Sure. Oh yeah, absolutely. hundred yeah, percent. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, and, but you know what, I mean, he's just, he, he, 
he is, he's emotional and um, for better or worse. Right. And that's part of what I think people love about him. And it's one of the things that I admire about him is he doesn't uh, pretend to be what he's not. Um, but anyway, back to your question, you know, who knows? Um, I do know that he, he, I watched Jordan a lot this week because as I, as I told you earlier, I've, I've watched him a, a lot. Um, he, uh, he's driving the ball really well. And, um, uh, fixed with the exception of 14 yesterday when he inexplicably hit one the, in the apartments out of bounds. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, uh, I, you know, he's still very twitchy and, um, I mean, this is my impression that he still tends to overanalyze and overthink things. Right. Um, we were walking with him at number five, which is the great dog leg around uh, the Trinity river with the ditch on the left, uh, a really hard par four and uh, hardest hole in the golf course. And he, he, he pulled his drive into the ditch and he was close enough to the ropes where we could hear him and Greller like, uh, you know, adjudicating the situation. Mm -hmm. And Jordan just had so many thoughts. He wanted to do this and he wanted to do that. And, and the shot that he was really committed to, it had to, it had to fly at a certain trajectory and height and it had to hit the ground uh, and bounce a certain way for it to succeed. Yeah. And, um, you know, Greller, Jordan said, I've got this shot. And Greller said, I know you do, but this isn't the time for it. Wow. And, okay. <laughs> and he hit the shot anyway. And it ended up, I mean, it's such a low percentage shot. He hit the percentages. It ended up well short of the green in the rough with a tree in front. Mm -hmm. He was lucky to make five, which he did. He got up and down. He was chipping for par and he right. made a five. Right. Uh, and I, I just, you know, I, I don't know. Sometimes like I'm, I'm 55 years old and, and I used to play golf at a much better level than I do now. And yeah. I took these breaks to write my books. Right. And when I came out of my breaks, I wanted to play the same kind of golf that I was playing when I was 30 and playing a hundred times a year. Yeah. I knew, I, I knew how to do that. I couldn't make my body do it right. anymore. And I wonder if, you know, if there's a little of that going on with Jordan, even though he's very young still, uh, you know, he wants to be who he was in 2015 and it's frustrating and annoying to him that he can't do that. And he presses, he pushes things maybe too much. I don't know. I, I, I again, I don't talk to him. I don't ha I talk to his parents anymore. I don't have any insights. Yeah, no, but I think, I think there's something there because, you know, when Jordan was at his best, it was fascinating to watch him have these discussions with Greller, whether you were lucky enough to pick it up on TV or to be following his group or something like that. And that was part of the appeal of him. And part of what Twitter loved is that, wow, look how much he analyzes. Look how well prepared he is. But there is also, even back then, as impressive as, as, impressive as he was, there was a thought in my head, too, that is like, this seems mentally exhausting. It seems like something <laughs> yeah. you can't give up. Right. And, and, but the point you make too is like, okay, if you lose a step, even if it's just psychological or whatever it may be, he does seem to have the personality that mistakenly believes you can over plan and have, and sort of reassert control that way. Whereas mm -hmm. like you're saying, it's actually can be kind of counterproductive in some ways. And, and sort of that, um, 
don't know if we want to call it OCD or over-analytical personality. It doesn't really work on a golf course. You have to have a little bit of Dustin Johnson in you sometimes where you just swing and you just do it, right? And you don't overthink it. And yeah. Um, Well, and Jordan, Jordan just sees so many possibilities. And I mean, he's got a bright mind. And um, sometimes when you're playing sports, that can be to your detriment. Right. Uh, he's got a, you know, kind of a florid imagination. He sees things in his mind, mind's eye that could happen. And, and he knows that it's a possibility, but is it prudent? Yeah. <laughs> and I, you know, I think that's where, where he gets himself. It's, it's really like Phil Mickelson disease, except Phil's, Phil's yeah. more of a, Phil's more of a zealot. Like Phil, Phil's is more tied in with a compulsive gambler's personality, but it's like, yeah, if there's a 1% chance to make a spectacular shot, why not? <laughs> it's got a chance. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I, I would be uh, foolish to uh, not ask this question while we're here. Um, as you said, I think it was it 12 years you were at the Statesman. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you know, you've been around Jordan Spieth a lot. He's mm-hmm. somebody who everybody really likes. He's a smart guy. He's very honest. Is there anything that you learned about him in your time covering him that this, <laughs> this is a very put you on the spot question, I'm realizing as I ask it. But no, is there anything that you would say that, you know, many people don't know or something you found that makes this guy tick or anything kind of quirky about his background or his personality that uh, that seemed like kind of like important to you while you were figuring him out and covering him? I've got a little detail and I don't know what it means. Um, but it, I'll, I, I still remember it. It's from the first round of the Nelson when he was 16 years old, he's playing on a sponsor's exemption and <clears throat> there was a rain delay before his tea time. And, um, the media center at TPC Las Colinas was like the indoor tennis facility or something really big, spacious, had a ping pong table and he came in and uh, was like looking for a game on the ping pong table. Uh, He, he, he wore khaki uh, his first round. And um, this was back when we still wore cotton on the golf course. (laughs) And, (laughs) and I remember that he looked a little frumpy. Like he, his, his khaki cotton pants were a little wrinkled. Uh-huh. And I remember, and this is the detail that, that means the most to me, that he, his golf shoes, um, this is, was, uh, he was wearing saddles, like FootJoy saddles with soft spikes. And his golf shoe was missing two spikes. Mm. Now, now here's, I don't know. I don't know what that means exactly, <laughs> but, but here, but, but if I were a 16 year old kid getting ready to play in a PGA tour tournament, I would have had my outfit picked out, ironed and all set to go like three weeks before the tournament. Right. And I would definitely have made sure that my shoes had all the spikes in them, you know? Yeah. But I was just like something about the, the magnitude of the moment uh, that it would, what it would have meant to me. It didn't mean that to him. Right. Right. And I, you know, I, and I don't remember if I thought that this was a good sign or a bad sign. <laughs> yeah. For Jordan, yeah. But I was just like, I can't believe your shoe is missing two spikes when you're making your PGA tour. Debut. <laughs> that's so, that's so interesting. Cause in a lot of ways it seems to go against type of what we were just talking about right. with that compulsive right. planning gene or whatever. 
Yeah. 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 I, I don't know, but I, I will always remember that, um, that, that he was not, uh, as put together as that's, I think 99.9% of us would have been. Oh, I mean, I'm a slob and I would have been looking my best that day. <laughs> right. I mean, yeah, he looked good. He looked good, but it's just like, yeah, the pants yeah. were a little funny, but the, the missing spikes in the shoes is what that's I a, That's a great detail. That. I'm glad I asked you that question. Uh, <laughs> all right. Well, Kevin, I haven't even asked you about the winner here. Daniel Berger, uh, the king of mid June, I guess. Uh, right? <laughs> three wins. Yeah. I mean, he, he has always struck me as somebody who's a, a, a tough competitor. You can almost see it in his eyes that he, relishes competition but then he kind of fell off the scene for a little while there too um yeah, yeah give me uh give me your your sense of uh of burger uh this weekend i i don't think anybody expected him to do this well much less win well um i will say after watching him uh yesterday that he has a a ball flight and a swing that is built for a colonial okay um, especially when the wind's up as it was yesterday um i don't know if you could tell on tv but the, the two shots that he hit in the playoff, the tee shot and the, the approach, um, they, were, they were sort of three-quarter knockdown. I wouldn't call them stingers, but, uh, but they were definitely flighted, flighted under the wind. And, you know, for somebody to be able to play those shots with confidence in a playoff for a million bucks, I think says a lot about uh, the kind of player he is. Um, He's, you know, he's got that interesting uh, look at the top where he's, his wrist is kind of bowed like, like DJs. Mm -hmm. um, but he's also, you know, he's kind of like a, like a slow burn and uh, like Morikawa, he doesn't really emote much yeah. until, um, I mean, who he was and what this tournament win meant to him that came out in his post round interviews. And, yeah. you know, he had been kind of, out in the wilderness a little bit. He had that injury to his wrist and um, like Jordan Spieth hadn't won since 2017. Uh, and uh, I found him very genuine. I found him accessible, uh, even a little bit touching. Um, I mean, he kind of broke up a couple of times talking to golf channel and CBS about what this meant to him. I, yeah. in fact, I used in my game store, I used what I thought was the, the best thing anybody said all week he said he felt blessed and lucky to be the winner at Colonial. And it, it occurred to me late last night as I was writing that, we all kind of felt that way, you know? That's great. We all felt blessed and lucky to have had this experience because, you know, everybody left testing negative. Everybody, nobody got sick during mm -hmm. the tournament. Everybody stayed well. And that was really the important thing. I was really afraid that... Uh, some, we we're going to get a couple of positives, maybe even more, uh, but that didn't happen. Now, I, I want to ask you about this one moment because I, I tend to read too much into things sometimes. Sometimes I don't. I thought it was a really brilliant move he made on the playoff hole to finish putting when he hit it in. And I don't know if he did yes. it for the reason I think he did it for. But my impression as I thought about it afterward was... That was really smart because it just adds that extra little increment of pressure to Morikawa. Now, look, okay, yeah, you know he's probably going to make it. He's definitely going to make it. So it doesn't change things markedly, but there's something there psychologically about being in the hole and Morikawa now his putt is 100% do or die. Do you think he did it for that reason, first of all? And, you know, did it? <laughs> is that why Morikawa missed? No, we, don't, we obviously don't know the answer to that, but is there any yeah. sense of whether he did that on purpose to kind of 
put that little extra increment of pressure on on him? Well, I will tell you that when it when it happened, um, I remember thinking that is a baller move right there. Yeah, because it's a lot like match play. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Like get in. Get in the hole. What do you got? Yep. Um, you know, it's it, it literally is all or nothing at that point. Um, you know, I'm not again. I'm not going to pretend to know Daniel Daniel Berger and his motives, but uh, I did think that it was cunning and certainly legit. And in fact, Berger asked a rules official. He didn't ask Morikawa. You could see it on TV. He had, to his left, you could see it. Yeah, he asked yeah. the guy with the blonde hair there, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. If he could do it. Um, but yeah, why, why, I mean, why else? Why, why would, why would you, what other reason would you do that? Right. It had to be to throw it back all on, on yeah. Murakawa. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like that a lot. And again, we don't know what it affected, but I just, I just thought it was a smart, it made me think, pick him for the Ryder cup. <laughs> uh, so Kevin, just two more quick ones for you. One about Harold Varner. Um, it, you know, in a lot of ways, because of the the social scene happening right now, it was meaningful to see him at the top of the leaderboard. However, life doesn't play according to a script. And, you know, what we know is that Harold has struggled under pressure before. And again, it seemed like he had a, he had a tough time. Um, I, it's tough to ask this question, but I mean, is it, is it just the case that he is somebody who has not yet learned to deal with Sunday pressure? I think so. On Saturday, I, uh, I, I wrote about him for um, Sunday and I got in touch with his uh, longtime coach in um, – uh, Gastonia, North Carolina, a guy named Bruce Sutter. Okay. And uh, he called me, <laughs> he was out on the practice tee when I called the club and he called me real late in the day, like seven o'clock. And I was glad that, it, that, that he called so late because he had had the chance to have a text exchange with Harold already. Now, Harold was the last person on the putting green Saturday. Uh, and he had texted his coach, Bruce Sutter, and, and asked him if he had seen his play that day. And Bruce said, no. And Harold said that he'd missed a few putts. Um, and, and Bruce, his coach told him, you're trying too hard. You're don't be afraid to miss. Yeah. And, uh, when I talked to Bruce about what that meant, he's, he, he spoke of experience and that's what Harold Varner lacks right now is the experience. Like Varner played with speed on Saturday when Varner, when Spieth was 16, he was finishing in a tie for 17th at the Bayern Nelson. When Varner was 17, 16, the only thing he'd ever done is played in a high school tournament. You know, like a lot of these players have a lot on Varner in terms of experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know what, 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 uh, what goes first when um, you're, you know, you're under the gun on a Saturday or Sunday? It's 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 putting. And Varner made an 11 footer on number one on Saturday. And that he, that was it, the longest putt he made all day. And he missed two putts inside of six feet on coming yeah. in. And same thing yesterday he made that, that birdie on, on one. And then he was done. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I think once he starts holding two or three or four more putts on the weekend, he's going to be right up at the top again. All right. Last question for you. Austin is one of the greatest cities in this country. I, I love every time I go there. Uh, it is, you know, rife with unbelievable restaurants and bars and things like that. If you could only eat at one place uh, for the rest of your life in Austin, Texas, what would, what would the restaurant be? <laughs> oh my God. That, that's the hardest question I've asked you, right? Matt's El Rancho. What's it, say it again. Matt's El Rancho. Okay. I don't know if I've been there, but. Uh, well, it's on South Lamar. It's a Tex-Mex <laughs> place. It's historic. It's iconic. 
Um, it's been there forever. You've got to get the cheese enchiladas when you go. Uh, and I know I'm going to get raked by people for this because there's so many like uh, foodie spots downtown. Yeah. But, you know, Matt's has been there for 60 years for a reason. So uh, I got yeah, Matt's El Rancho for me. Uh, well, beers are on me next time I'm in Austin, if you're up for it. Let's meet at Matt's El Rancho. Queso and enchiladas are on me. Segment break. All right, Kevin Robbins, thank you very much. That was great. All right, now it is time for a segment we call Spike's Takes. And for those of you who are new to this, uh, Spike Friedman is a billionaire who spends most of his time on his yacht in international waters for uh, for various legal reasons. And, you know, Spike, I'm just going to tell you right up front, he's not a good guy. Um, he's not a nice person or a moral person. However, he is a big fan uh, of the Apocalypse Sports Network. Most people... You know, I asked for $3 a month. He decided to give $6,000 uh, per month. But part of that is that every week he gets to come on and, uh, and give a sports take here on the podcast. So, look, these are not family takes. These, are, these takes can be offensive. Uh, they're not palatable in any way. Um, but I can't say no to the money. And, and so he comes back every week. All right. Uh, with that intro, here he is, Spike Friedman. Welcome back. What an honor. It's an honor and a privilege to be back. Sorry. I thought... I don't know what happened these last couple of weeks. I kept thinking I was successfully in international waters, but it turned out I was in national waters. And there's a lot of things I can't say. You know, I can't really drop a real spike take if I'm within a jurisdiction. Yeah, and so that yeah, that's why we missed you last week. So I, I didn't realize that it was because you accidentally came into national waters. Yeah, 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 national waters. Now, how this is a distinction I don't get. So some water belongs to certain countries, and some water Correct. is like uncharted. It's charted. I, I like to mess with the charts by uh, just like dropping a bunch of junk so that like it looks like there's a landmass to satellites. <laughs> just as much junk as I can throw overboard from my ship. As much plastic waste. I you know you know those like ring things that hold like soda cans together. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I try to like weave those and then like throw them overboard uh, and create a new landmass. Well, let me let me ask you this: Is the Pacific Garbage Island is that you're doing? Uh, I, look, I like to think of myself as sort of a Michelangelo figure, and that's my sustain chap. Okay. So that that isn't – a lot of people believe it's like this product of, of waste and people throwing things away and not recycling. But it actually, is, but it's person throwing things away, and it's me. Okay. Good, good to know. That's really, really good to know. All right. Well, Spike, uh, now that we know you're responsible for that um, – do you have a take for us? Do you have a classic? I do. Take? I'm really excited. There's a lot of good news coming out on the baseball labor front. Mm -hmm. And so for me, that's really exciting. Seeing that the owners, you know, we had today commissioner Rob Manfred say a great name, Manfred. Mm. You love, you love a name like Manfred. It's got man and Fred right next to each other. But anyway, he said he's uh, no longer a hundred percent on the season happening. Ooh. And I think that's great. I think that that is exactly what the owners of baseball need. 30 rich men getting their profits protected against the vulturous players. We know that when we're talking about baseball, that's an owner's game. You know, the fundamentally at the bottom line, you care about the owners. You want their <laughs> bottom line to be treated well. And so I think it is great to see the commissioner saying he is no longer 100% on professional baseball being played this year so that they don't have to come down to the treasonous demands of players. I really respect that. But I think he can go further. 
Why are we talking about playing baseball next year in 2021? There might still be a disease. There might not. Either way, you get more profit if you don't play the games. Okay? So just commit right now. No baseball 2020. No baseball 2021. Now I know what you're saying. By 2022, odds are that's when we have a vaccine. That's when we have baseball coming back. Absolutely not. You need to break the players. No baseball in 2022. <laughs> Absolutely no baseball in 2022. And I know what you're thinking. Okay, three years with no baseball. 2023, everyone is itching for baseball. Everybody wants professional baseball back, baby. But no, that's when you have the players really on their knees. They're coming to you, they're begging. We'll play for peanuts. We'll play for Cracker Jacks. And you slap the Cracker Jacks out of their mouth. You say, you say, Mike Trent, you say, no, you don't play baseball. This is our game. This is an owner's game, and we're winning. <laughs> You're the loser, Mike Trout. Wow. Nolan Arenado, other <laughs> baseball players, Bellinger, Corey, and Kyle Seeger, both of you, get out of here. This is not a league about playing baseball. This is a league about owning baseball now. <laughs> and so, okay, just to summarize, you want them – you want them to just really hijack baseball, but I want to go back to it's something. It's not hijacking. They already have it. They already have it, but just to yeah, really yeah. to really push the players. But you were saying before, actually, what attracts you about professional baseball is the owners and not the players. Oh, yeah, yeah, See, I would think most people would say, oh, yeah, I'm in it for the players. I like to watch them compete. I root for my team, the managers, the players. You're an owner's guy. Yeah, that, what you just said doesn't sound right to me. Who cares about the players? What, a millionaire? Am I supposed to care about some sort of billionaire? I want to hear what billionaires are up to. Okay. What is the what is John Kerry's wife up to? I don't know. Does she own the Pirates? Maybe. I don't know, but I want to know. I want to know who owns the Pirates. I don't write it. The Ricketts family. Now, that is a family of absolute champion. You know, they got Trump elected. Interesting. They own the Cubs. Interesting. Two historically great franchises. The Trumps and the Cubs, both owned by the Ricketts. Now, that is someone you can root for. If you can't root for the family that renovated Wrigley Field in such a way that people had to pee into solo cups because they couldn't get the bathrooms open on time in a championship season, you know, who can you root for in this crazy world we call international waters so let me let me just put this at you it sounds like because you root for the owners and their lives more than anything you don't mm -hmm. need baseball at all and i guess that's part of the take like ba the game itself oh. is almost irrelevant to you well for me baseball is is more of it, it's a land transaction game like for me what's really inspiring right now is the rangers and their ability to really wring a lot of money out of the local government of Fort Worth, of Texas, for a new stadium. <laughs> they've only been in that other stadium, what, 24 years? They got $2 billion to get a new stadium. That's great. That's gamesmanship. Wait, what? Wait, uh, 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 curveballs. Get out of here. It's about land acquisition. So there was, you know, funnily, we spoke with Eric Nussbaum uh, last week, who wrote a great book about, 
uh, the you know the making of the Dodgers stadium. The heroic stadium. O'Malley family. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so they totally wiped out a whole neighborhood uh, and eventually made the three, neighborhoods. Three, three neighborhoods. three neighborhoods and made yeah, yeah and made this. And what's the valley called or what's the area called again? Well, Chavez that Ravine. was called Chavez Ravine, yeah. but it was Bishop and La Loma, and I'm blanking on the third. But yeah, um, for and Eric, me, Eric, well, okay, I was just say Eric, oh, no, no, Eric yeah. would portray that as a tragedy. It sounds like that to you would have been a triumph in some ways. Well, what, what's really great about that is that not only were people kicked off the land, but they were tricked first into thinking they'd be given public housing designed by Richard Neutra. But then it turned out, no, that's baseball land, baby. To me, the existence of Dodger Stadium is better than anything that happened in Dodger Stadium once it already existed. And honestly, the tragedy of Dodger Stadium is that they haven't, you know, taking over another neighborhood to build another stadium in the intervening decades. Well, great. Well, I think, you know, I think you're taking... <coughs> Let me try that again. Why? <laughs> All right, great. Well, I think your take is really clear. Uh, you're supporting the owners in this. You think they should basically have no baseball at least three years? Uh, how far do you go with this? Uh, I, I mean, you push it until the players are willing to do what is right, and that's play for love of the game again, you know. And by that, I mean uh, remake the movie for love of the game because that's a great uh, movie. Okay, okay. And also play for free like they're NCAA athletes. Like, that's important <laughs> too. The NCAA is the only true and pure sports organization out there, but I love to see baseball moving back in that direction. Well, Spike Friedman, thank you very much. Appreciate the take. Uh, any last words, or have we basically covered it? Uh, I think we've handled it. Yeah, I think it's been a great honor. Uh, and I, I don't want to say what national waters I am currently approaching, but let's just say I'm sending my crew to short a cough. Segment break. Wow, what a legitimately bad person. That was Spike Friedman. Thanks to him. Thanks even more to Kevin Robbins. Uh, and I hope you guys enjoyed it. Guess what? This week we're going to be interviewing Hannah Kaiser. That's going to be the Thursday show, so that's something to look forward to. You know the spiel here. You can uh, get the show on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you get them. Tell a friend if you liked it. Uh, spread the word. Leave a review on iTunes. Hey, just be a fan. Just be a good guy. All right. Thank you all very much. We will see you Thursday. Goodbye. Goodbye.